Welcome to Novel Romantics, a podcast about contemporary American fiction. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. Today, we'll be discussing the short story collection, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky by Leslie Neka Arima. My guest today is Nadifa Mohammed. Nadifa Mohammed was born in 1981 in Hargeisa, Somaliland. At the age of four, she moved with her family to London. She's the author of Black Mamba Boy, The Orchard of Lost Souls, and most recently, The Fortune Men, which is actually so recent. It was like two weeks ago as of our recording that it was published. She has received both the Betty Trask Award and the Somerset Mom Award, as well as numerous other prize nominations for her fiction. She was named as one of Granta's best young British novelists in 2013. Welcome, Nadifa, to Novel Romantics. Hello, Doug. Thanks for coming along. Um, as I said today, we're going to discuss what it means when a man falls from the sky by Leslie Nika Arima. So normally this is the part of the podcast where I say we're going to avoid giving any spoilers or anything like that. But we're dealing with a short story collection today. And it's kind of hard to talk about a short story without giving spoilers just because of the nature of the form. Uh, so basically, my advice to you, dear listener, is to either roll with the spoilers and you'll know what you're getting into when you read the book or like stop listening right now go read the book come back and then Nadifa and I will spoil it for you then um <laughs> anyway I would like to start with a story that in fact Nadifa you introduced me to uh, okay. which kind of slightly blew my mind uh when I read it why who why why did it blow my mind? I'll tell you why in a second the story is called okay. who will greet you at home it's right in the middle of the collection the reason it blew my mind, or at least at first blew my mind, was the opening paragraph, which I'm going to read. Uh, the yarn baby lasted a good month, emitting dry, cotton-soft gurgles and pooping little balls of lint before Ogechi smashed its thigh on a nail and it unraveled as she continued walking, mistaking the little huffs for the beginnings of hunger, not the cries of an infant being undone. By the time she noticed, it was too late, the leg a tangle of fiber, and she pulled the string the rest of the way to end it, rather than have the infant grow up maimed. If she was to mother a child, to mute and subdue and fold away parts of herself, the child had to be perfect. And it's that really that opening paragraph, because I didn't, I kind of knew exactly where I was in the story when I read it, uh -huh. and then also had no idea where I was in this story. I was True. like, is this baby, is this about a real baby made of yarn? <laughs> is this some kind of metaphor? Is this like, you know... Yes. And and then you find out as the story goes on and it is real. It's yes, a real baby. But it's but it's real and it's not real. Yeah. The whole world around it is is kind of real and unreal. You're thrown into a situation where I think you want it to be real, but you know it can't be. Yeah. I think that's that's actually really I hadn't thought of it quite exactly that way. That you're absolutely right. You want you want it to be real because it because of the way she kind of tells the story, I suppose. Like she mm. She takes it uh, at face value as real herself and tells you this unreal story in a very matter-of-fact way yes, that makes you want it to be real, right? It's also gentle. The way it's told is pretty gentle, pretty matter-of-fact. In terms of who, who, is, who is the reader meant to be, that was something I never quite got to grips with. 
because it has these fantastical elements. The writing is very simple. Um, it's not trying to tax you or it's not overly or obviously philosophical. So it, it lulls you into the sense that this is a simple story, but it but it really isn't. No, it's it's anything but simple, I think. I think that's one of the things that in general in this collection she does well is write she writes simply without writing simplistically. Yes. And it's that matter of factness like and like so I I recommended this story to a student I was working with this year because because of that matter of factness of taking something that isn't possible it's not possible that this is real in a realistic world but the story that I want to tell is a story that has I suppose realistic intentions yes yes and I think that there's a truth to this story which I think is what mm -hmm. grabbed me and it's the relationship between women in regards to children and the way that your your value your worth your identity as a woman is so tied up in these creatures that you either bring into life or don't bring into life yeah or or try to bring into life exactly so there was that there was an electricity around that which goes beyond the ways in which she she tries to manufacture these children from string or cotton wool or leaves or whatever it might be that weight of having to of having your own worth tied up with that that felt very real and very identifiable yeah i mean it's there in that last sentence of that first paragraph if she was to mother a child to mute and subdue and fold away parts of herself yes the child had to be perfect that idea that she has to there's something about herself that she has to absolutely well the word here is subdue which is a pretty um again it's, it's so matter of fact but when you start thinking about that it's a really strong word it's not like it she is. has to set aside she has to subdue she has to deny something about herself and in fold order, away yeah in order to be do this other thing that she desperately also desperately wants to do but but the only reason she wants to do that thing is because she feels she has to so the children are <sighs> They're manufactured. That's what they feel to me as if they're manufactured. And you just made me think about an interaction I had a couple of weeks ago um, where I met a woman I've known pretty much all my life or all the time I've lived in London. So she's seen me grow up from the age of around six years old. And she came up to me and she said, oh, you are so-and-so's sister. And I said, yes. And she said, have you had any children yet? <laughs> <laughs> Those two questions, basically, what, I think I vaguely know you, I do. Have you had any children? Yeah. And I as said that's, no. As though, as though that's not an intrusive <laughs> question to ask. I said no. And then she said, hmm. And that was that. That was the co whole conversation. <laughs> Gosh. And it was as if she was, she, she was a supervisor walking around marking women as having had children or not had children. It, of course, has no bearing to her life has little bearing on my life and of all of the things to ask me it was yeah. such an abrupt one which is which is interesting and i mean, I mean in, in, apart, aside from its own interest for you as part of your <laughs> life it's interesting to me as a literary thing i don't mean it that way um, but in relation to this story because there's this figure in this story called mama yes who runs this hairdressing salon basically but is also a She's a, she's basically like a mafia boss in this story. Yes. Yeah, quite intimidating, quite scary. Yeah, and she's almost dictating 
that these women, these young women who come to her shop and who, in in the case of the main character of the story, work for her, um, she's almost dictating that they have babies and they come to her for her blessing to have their babies. And they, you know, there's this thing that gets repeated in the story that the main character doesn't have enough money to pay her for the blessing she needs to create a child that will um, grow and succeed and thrive and so on. And so mm. she pays her with, I, I want, I just want a bit more of your joy. Yeah. That's so creepy. Yeah. That's so creepy. And women do do that to each other. And that, well, I'm wondering, like, not that I'm trying to like <laughs> do therapy for you, but, um, but like, I'm wondering <laughs> whether there's, there's something in that woman's response to you. That's like, Hmm. There's like, where's the, she was trying know, to steal my joy. She's, yeah, yeah. She exactly. was, and this woman in in question is Nigerian. So I don't know if I was if I fell victim, <laughs> like a drive by, a drive by <laughs> attack. Um, bitch, you know these these elements, this cultural baggage is definitely present in Somali culture, but I can't. It would t- there would be a little bit of a preamble amongst Somalis. You'd get to that question, but there'd be a bit of a preamble. But here there was no preamble. And there's no preamble in the stories either, right? Like, there's no. a lot of these stories are about young or youngish Nigerian women, yeah, or gir- or even girls, children, um, and and th- these kinds of pressures coming on them from you know other women uh, as as assumptions or coming from nowhere. Yes. And actually, there's very, very few men in this story. They're absent. It's yeah. not, it's a world where you don't need a man to procreate so that they're not needed. And I can't, I can't, is there one male character at all? In this story, I don't think there is. If they do exist, they exist on the fringes of everything that matters. And with my interaction with the woman in the street, she didn't ask me if I was married or had a partner. It was again, as if I didn't need that. I didn't need a man to procreate. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the thing that was at stake was me and a child. Yeah. The important thing you do is a child. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's what makes me a woman of, of the world or a woman in, in essence. Except it doesn't because in the, in the story wild, yeah, uh, which is, I guess, the third story in the collection. It's about a young woman who has had a child, so she's yeah. done that thing that's expected, <laughs> but not in the way that she was supposed to. Of right? course. So there's a whole bunch of different failures ahead of you right there. It never ends. I think that's what's kind of depressing about the short story collection is that it reveals the kind you you get to one camp base of life, and then you realize there's another one, a few thousand feet above you there and you keep climbing you keep yeah. climbing or sometimes it's even like an inch away yeah <laughs> and it, and it's, but, it, but it takes you a thousand feet and i yes and and sometimes they overlap which is another interesting thing here like this these stories are are very international they're, they're all kind of contain domestic family or friendship stories that that often span their characters like so like in wild the character um, has emigrated from Nigeria to the United States as a child with her mother because her father has died and she's going uh, she's about to go to college but has basically you know been naughty I guess is the best way of putting yeah. it it's not, it's not <laughs> uh, and so she's kind of being sent back to the family to keep her out of trouble till she goes to college um, but of course the family in back in Nigeria are 
are in any number of intertangled troubles themselves. These are the kind of like, here's I've arrived at this station. I've created some of my own trouble. Now I'm being shipped off into somebody else's trouble to create more trouble with my trouble. And it's that, and it's like, she's created for herself American trouble in America. And so the thing to, to keep herself from American trouble is to send her off to Nigeria, where she's that's just embroiled in all kinds of Nigerian trouble. Of course. and that's Which is also partly culturally confusing to her. There's a specific Somali term for this phenomena. It's called Dagan Ellis, and it means returned to the culture. It's when you're sort of deported back by your family to be re, uh, to be acculturated in the culture that you should be in, that you've neglected or you've fallen out of in, in the West. So often it can be done to very young children, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, but it's often teenagers, late teenagers, early 20s who've got into drugs or whatever it might be um, in the West. And then they realize when they go back to Somalia, Somaliland, that the teenage lifestyle there is just as bad. Yeah. But the, but their parents have got this pickled version of this this kind of homeland where everyone is very religious and responsible and uh, strict about their own morality and behavior. So they they're caught between well they're caught between being told that they're not good Somalis um, and then going back to Somalia and being told that they're boring and they're, <laughs> you know, they're not cool. They're basically yeah. not cool. I was going to say, that's exactly what happens to this, this um, character in, in wild that she's like the cool, bad, like pot smoking, underage drinking teenage American teenager who gets sent back to her aunt and cousin in Nigeria, who the, the cousin has a illegitimate child that no one, everyone knows is her child, but no one acknowledges. Everyone calls her brother. Yeah. And this becomes a kind of focal point of the story that actually the moment where that plays out in that story, I really like a lot where there's just, you just watch the, like what is literally a culture clash. Yes. <laughs> where this yeah. girl keeps saying obnoxious kind of American things to the, in this situation that she has no reading of whatsoever. So she's blurting out all kinds of stuff and creating traps for herself and all the people around her. Yeah, and I think maybe that's the strength of the whole collection, actually, is that she illuminates what it means to be constantly out of sync or, you know, desperately trying to chase something that you, that you can't obtain. And for some reason, I thought that Arima was Nigerian-American full stop, but she, she was born in London. So she, there's three cultures going on in her life. Um, and it's when it made me think about when I go back to Somalia and or Somaliland, and people say to me, they can tell that I'm foreign by the simplest of things, the way I walk, my mannerisms, never mind my accent when I'm speaking in Somali. You're, you really are marked out, and this place that you're meant to belong quickly tells you that you don't belong. You're charged, you're charged Westerner rates in the shops. It's just, it, it feels as if you are concocting, you're trying to concoct a home that doesn't exist for yourself. Yeah. The way that the narrator of Wild starts to talk about exactly this thing in uh, in that story, she says, this is after there's been this huge confrontation and her, her cousin's runoff. She says, in the elevator, my limbs began to shake. I crossed my arms and the trembling moved to my lips. I'd always thought myself so savvy and grown, smoking in Leela's basement, kissing boys in hidden corners, maneuvering my mother with my smart mouth. I'd never felt as much a child as I did just now. I, 
and I think that's one piece of it is like the way it makes you feel that cultural disconnection suddenly makes you feel super naive. Yes, and childlike. That's if you haven't met those markers of adulthood. It is that. And sometimes the children there are much more streetwise, tougher. You know, they'll mock you for not being as Somali as you should be. So it is, it's quite a humiliating <laughs> experience. And never even go back so, home. <laughs> never, <laughs> never. And it's only because I forced myself to keep going back that I managed to kind of carve out a, a small world that I do fit into. But you have to, you develop a thick skin. You have to develop a thick skin for that to happen. That's interesting. I wonder, that, that's another another angle that you could look at these stories from is like maybe these a lot of these stories are about someone trying to develop that thick skin mm. none, none of these characters particularly have it there's a couple no. there's a couple stories that end with um on kind of pseudo cliffhangers and i think one of them works a bit better than the other one i think where a character has the narrator has realized something oh in fact in one case it's a narrator in one case it's a, a, a just a protagonist and there and it ends with them about to about to react yeah based on what they've just learned and you don't know what you never find out what the reaction is and i wonder if that moment is partly about excavating some of that territory of like oh i've just become a little bit harder harder yeah and and i've i've realized something that i can take a, i can take a step forward rather than being like what you described earlier is like oh, there's another step a thousand feet up yes like this is like oh i'm actually in charge of this step I've got yeah. control over this step instead of being forced to make a step I don't want to make. Yes, and that maybe that's a position of um, not despair, but of defeat in a way, where you stop trying. And I think you do have to stop trying. That's the only way you can have a, a more solid sense of self or any kind of stability is is, is when you stop trying. So in, I think that's true of one of these stories and not the other. I'm going to say what the stories are okay. and, and get into a bit more detail of that. Because, um, so hang on a second. One of them is Glory, which has a fun starting. She's, she's actually quite funny a lot. There's lots of sly humor. Yeah. Part of that, like that plainness of her prose style, because it's not, it's not, it's not like Hemingway plain. It's not this kind of like super terse thing. It's just, she's just very matter of fact. And like, and it, and it comes out as a like kind of dry offhand humor a lot of times. I found Mama quite funny. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I mean, Glory starts with with um, Glory's full name and and how it runs afoul of Facebook's real name policy, which is a really there's <laughs> this whole discourse on it. But that story ends with her. She gets involved in this relationship, and she's kind of lied her way into the relationship. The um, guy <laughs> she's in a relationship has sort of lied uh, a, <laughs> himself. Yeah. And there's this moment towards the and where I'll see if I can find it so there's a moment towards the end where oh yeah here it is she says um, it surprised Glory to realize that she had not been the only one scheming <laughs> 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 which I think is really interesting yeah. um, it is and I guess as well with Nigeria being so famous for those is it 419 scams there's a particular term for them and was it Yahoo boys and things that that I love the idea that that's actually a part of the culture that you you're aware of groups of people being scammers and you also can become a scammer. It's it's almost a, it's a subculture. 
Yeah. Well, she's, I mean, she's a total scammer in this story. Yeah. And she's pretty upfront about that. Like she scams her way <laughs> through everything. Um, and then, but she, this realization she has that like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not the only scammer in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and that gives a kind of uh, chemistry, you know, there's an electricity in the air. And then she has to make a decision about it about that realization and it ends with her making the decision but it doesn't say what the decision is and that seems kind of a bit of of a kind of moment of despair to me in the way that you described it and then there's this story the last story of the collection redemption which um also ends with someone making a decision and, and like walking into a room to say something to someone and you don't find out what they say but it ends my um, I stepped into view and threw something of my own. And, and you're about to find out what she's going to say to somebody, which seems less, at least in my reading of it, that one seems less despairing. It might be slightly resigned to like the, all these things have happened in the story. That story is about someone stealing some, this, this, <laughs> there's a, you, you take, this is such an amazing um, idea. Even like you go to church on Sunday and one of the families is entrusted to take home the bag full of the offering money, (laughs) which proves how pious and whatever they are. But it's also like, it it also then creates this, um, you know, the sin of pride basically of like, where like (laughs) it's a big prideful deal to be so pious that you're trusted with this thing. And then you put it on display to tempt literally everyone who walks into your house, but also to show off to everyone who walks in and all this stuff. How trustworthy you are. Yeah, and then of course, as soon as this bag shows up in the story, it's it's Chekhov's gun. You know it's going to get stolen, and you know who's going to steal it. And the, this person does steal it, and whatever. And that's not even the end of the story. But um, like, it seems to me that she's in, in that story. She's learned something. She's maybe resigned to a certain way that the world works. But she, there's something much more like, a, to me anyway, of her taking control of the moment in her story there. And she's the thing that she wants to say to this other girl is because she's like, oh, holy shit, I've learned a thing here that I can take and use and like, and be me with in a way that the whole story, she's not really, she's always trying to ingratiate herself to people and stuff. Yes. Yeah. And maybe that's, that's one good thing about scammers is that they've got maybe more self, is it self-acceptance? Is that the right word? Or maybe, maybe they've got a more realistic understanding of themselves and other people. Well, yeah, there's um, striving. There's an honesty to it. So you've given me you've given me the perfect opening to mention my favorite writer Nelson Algren. Oh, um, who says who says like procure? He he says I'm slightly paraphrasing, but he says procurers and prostitutes are more honest than philosophers. They are. Which he was saying, he was saying in direct reference to Simone de Beauvoir. So it's actually a really also very mean (laughs) thing for him to be saying. Yeah. Um, But there's but there's a a lot of his literature works that way as well. It's these people know they're breaking the law, and it creates an honesty about who they are, like why they're doing and what they're doing. There's not like a pretense of, like for example. Um, to go back to the story um, wild there's not the pretense of like you've had this baby out of wedlock and so we're going to pretend it's your brother even though everyone literally everyone in our society knows otherwise and then when the girl says out loud oh you know her brother's fine it's like the scandal because the the omerta over what's happened has been broken yeah, and I, something made me think something um, that maybe a lot of the mental strife that people experience or seem to experience more 
commonly nowadays is caused by not wanting to accept your flaws, being unable to accept your flaws, finding them painful rather than coming to some sort of terms with them. People are now constantly looking for perfectibility. Yeah, because it's, well, because the perfectibility, the question is like perfectibility in in on whose terms or in relation to what, right? Like, so if, if Glory in the store, Glory is going to be perfect to her family and her fiance's family, she has to be someone who she just isn't and doesn't really want to be. That's very common. And I think that pressure, like Nigeria is a huge populous country and very competitive, much more competitive than Somaliland, just so which has only got 3 million people. So that those layers of performance and of competition are, they must be so <laughs> exhausting. And it's not surprising to me that so many Nigerian writers um, look at that. And, you know, it, it seems to me as if there's a lot of African writing coming out of Nigeria in particular, because the, the distance between the image people portray and their reality is just so vast. Whether that's pastors, politicians. Yeah. Do you think that is particular to Nigeria? I think it's very pronounced in Nigeria. It's definitely not unique. You can see it everywhere, but it's more pronounced in Nigeria. And also I love, there's a kind of bombasticness to how people, how far people are willing to, to play a role. You know, if, if that's the big, the big man with retainers all around him and, or the, the glamazon rich man's wife with the massive heels, the massive hair, like everything is just times 10. Glamazon is an amazing term, by the way. <laughs> I've not had a chance to use it recently, so I'm glad. Oh, well done. I'm glad, I'm glad you could break it out on our podcast. <laughs> and yeah, that's what excites me. It's partly what excites me about this collection as well. Yeah, well, because I, I was just thinking as you were saying that, it's it's also interesting that in that respect or in some parts of that respect the ways in which then again with the way these characters sort of the way the way the author herself has moved around like she's she's familiar and at home at least to some you know, we've just been talking about feeling not at home in different cultures and then the work you have to do to feel at home in different cultures that all of which you you can stake a claim to as as being part of your own she seems to have done a lot of that work or 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 is at least in a involved in a kind of deeply thought through or felt process of that because she she um she's writing these stories uh, not all the stories are, are reflecting back and forth between the united states and, and nigeria but a lot of them do and and that it's interesting to think about the ways in which she presents them as they're not mere images of each other and and it's not like one of them is a um is an exaggeration of the other or anything like that, but the ways in which they kind of bounce off each other and have, they kind of refract each other, I suppose, is is really interesting to think about. That like all of this Nigerianness that you've just un unraveled a bit for us. There's also there's there's. Uh, I was trying not to use the word concomitant because I'm not even sure I'm using it correctly. <laughs> um, there's like a parallel. It's a much safer word to use. There's a there's like a parallel Americanness that operates in some of these ways. How do you see? Tell me more. Well, I, you know, one of the things that's interesting in some of these stories is that so that come back coming back to that. You know the piousness of who gets to take home the offering bag. Yeah, it's like that. the The Christianity of 
of the Nigeria that we see in these stories is mm. it's got it's got a, a parallel to the evangelical Christianity in the United States and probably has its roots from from that as well. Well, I yeah, I think I've I've thought about this before outside of the context of literature, and I think there's there's a kind of strange. I don't. I don't know the history of it. I'm not. It's not my Me territory. But like, there's a strange kind of um, cross pollination between them because that American evangelical Protestantism certainly is something that Americans in particular worked really hard. Not just, but I mean, the British were doing it before the Americans even. But like Americans in particular, that that like um, mission, that sense yes. of mission, and going to far flung parts of the world, and, you know. Handing yeah, out Bibles to the locals, Africa, Africa yeah. and China and Vietnam and all, like literally every like the whole world, <laughs> anywhere where they didn't think there was enough Jesus. And you know, it, it it takes hold in some of these places. Yes, and it's there's a there's there's a real Americanness to Nigeria. I think you know I I've not been there, and I'm only kind of talking about what I've read um, and heard from friends and various things, but. It's also, I think, partly the reason that Nigerian immigrants to the U.S. do so well yeah. is that they've already been, they've already been Americanized in Nigeria. It's like it's already a work hard and get ahead culture. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Every not every man for himself, but almost. Yeah. Um, and that evangelical Christianity as well, on top of it, um, which is also, you know, it's, it's a prosperity gospel thing. It's a, you know. If you are if you are beloved by God, then you are rich, <laughs> because why would God keep you poor? All of that makes it quite a an exciting place and quite a quite a specific place within Africa. And speaking of the missionaries, I didn't realize that they have so many young. I rarely ever see young Americans in Africa unless they're t- connected to a church. Mm-hmm. And then in Kenya, in Uganda, in West Africa, they're all over the place. It's one of the chief connections culturally between America and Africa is is that evangelical Christianity. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. Barbara Kingsolver writes about it in the Poisonwood Bible in a Democratic Republic of Congo. All right, I haven't read I haven't read that book. You should. It's very good. Okay, I will. <laughs> It's something, that, and there's also like if I was to write, if I could, if I had the energy to write at the moment, one of the things I'd love to write about is this case in Uganda of a young American woman who went there um, and opened a clinic for children and was serving, well, serving in inverted commas, hundreds if not thousands of African children, and she had no medical qualifications at all. Oh my god! And, and dozens of children died in her in her false care. She was injecting them with things. She was doing all sorts. And then she fled Uganda when all of this was revealed. And she's, she's hiding out in America, hiding, you know, kind of unnecessarily because it doesn't seem as if anything will happen to her. But this, this case is so shocking and so blood boiling. And she's, she's, you know, she's given in, interviews explaining her version of events. And it just really, really terrifies me that she was able to get away with what she was doing in Uganda. And she was, was she doing it under like the auspices was, of the church and yeah. stuff? Or, yes. Know. Yeah. She was claiming all of these, um, she was claiming lots of uh, money, uh, donations, because she was doing all this uh, work for young African children. Gosh. Mm, terrible, like really scary. Yeah. And another thing that's connected to a degree is the environmental missionary type. 
and I don't I can't remember her name right now, but the woman who wrote Where the Where the Crow Dads Sing. Mm-hmm. Her husband also fled <laughs> Africa <laughs> because he and his him and his son shot a man dead. And they accused him of being a poacher and shot him dead and then fled the country with her. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, I just, it's just, you know, I can imagine now there's probably a lot of these different cases. It's, it's a very, it's very Joseph Conrad. It's very 19th century, but it's happening right under our, our noses in the modern age. That's something that we think is sort of, uh, yeah, doesn't happen or we it it's safely, happen. safely contained in a, in a past history of empire. Yes. Yeah. A distant one, not even a 1950s one, but an even further back one. But it's actually a very present part of our lives empire. and our cultural lives as well. Sometime over the winter, I, I rewatched The African Queen, which I hadn't seen in a mm. long time. And the, the opening in particular of that film is really interesting in that respect, because it's not that long ago, at least to my way of thinking, it's, it's the Second World War that film is set. And, um, and, it's, and it's full on exactly that kind of missionary. It's like they've set up, these British people have set up this um, little village and Christian colony and are you know the the man and his sister are 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 ministering everything from religion to you know economics and medical care and everything to this yeah um colony of black african people yes that then the nazis come in and destroy it. like the just it was i was really struck watching it um by the optics of what was going on in this really strange what i thought found really strange as an opening to the the film not strange in any bad way but just like thinking about it in 2020 2021 and it's not that long ago and it's like well humphrey bogart's character is this canadian who is therefore british um at that time which is weird as well and then just and it's the idea that somehow (laughs) it's just i don't know the the, the way the nazis come in and raise this village and and everyone yes. just looks to these two Christian missionaries to like help them out. And it's, and they're all, it's not presented in a way that I think like, you know, when you read um, things fall apart that you necessarily find a, approval for. I'm just, I've just pulled up something about this woman, her, the one in Uganda. Her name is Renee Bach, Bach, Renee Bach. And she turned up in Uganda as a 20 year old one of very many American teens who were working with evangelical churches in a town called Chinja in near Lake Victoria. So from the age of 20 to 25, she took in, in inverted commas, 940 Malnourished children and 105 of them died. And she's now being sued in a Ugandan civil court. It's amazing, like 20 years old and... Yeah. So this is this comes back to your young young like you, you see all these young very young americans doing yes. things like this yeah not just yes, americans so said, let it be said but um to be honest you re- you don't see many europeans doing it it is quite an american thing yeah it's like, it is like an american um evangelical yeah project and they pick one place and they go in on mass so they don't suffer as much culture shock and they can live their lives together um, and then they they run amok. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, I would like to write about this. I don't know when or how, but there is something really shocking and engaging about it. What the one story in this collection that I've 
don't quite know what to do with. And I'm wondering if that's the thing to do with it, or at least in part to do with it. What is a volcano? Which is um, the only story in this collection that is presented not as... So we talked earlier about the kind of... It, with respect to um, who will greet you at home, that it's like, it's not a magical realist story, but it has things in it that aren't real, that it asks yeah. you to... It asks you accept. to want to believe are real and to accept that are real. And the, and the, the narrator and the author certainly res- accept yes. as real. Mm. And there's other stories that operate in similar ways. There's one about where the, the dead mother comes alive out of a photograph and lives with them for one night at home. Um, mm. And that functions in a similar way, a less successful way, I think, ultimately in the, um, as a work of fiction. But But then there's this one story that is just kind of a fable. What is a volcano? And it's about warring animals. And I wonder if some of that, or at least one lens to put over that story, could be this kind of thing you've been talking about, that there's something there about the ways in which cultures, unlike the characters that I've been talking about, we've been talking about, that it's like this one character traverses these cultures and bumps up against their own sense of identity within these cultures, whatever, where where like these cultures transport their identity someplace and don't really necessarily seek to adapt it or don't think of it as something that needs to be adapted and the kind of wreckages that that causes that maybe that's something I'm going to have to going to have to yeah go back and reread this story again and start thinking about that cuz I, I reread it this morning and still couldn't quite and also what you just said about this this what we would kind of call magical realism it it, I think the idea, and I, I've played a little bit with magical realism in my own fiction, and it's not because I wanted to to write magical realism. It's because sometimes people's cultures and experiences go beyond what we consider realism, mm-hmm. but, but it's just as solid and believable to them. So just say um, the picture of the mother that comes alive. Yeah. All of the funeral practices that would have been common in all the different ethnic groups within Nigeria and West Africa and beyond have all been suffocated under either a very orthodox Islam or evangelical Christianity. So all of the ideas about what happens to someone once they pass away, what happens to their spirit, what happens to these ancestors who were for, for, for millennia there to look, look out for you, be part of your life in an active sense. Um, it's as if Arema is allowing that that older history, that older belief system, similarly with the the babies that can be made from from things, is all is all interacting with a much older culture and belief system and philosophy. Yeah, she's it's like she's stitching them back together into so through someone's experience of it. Yes, yeah, which is pretty lovely, and then it takes away some of the the horror aspects. I think sometimes people have described these stories as horror. But they're not really horror. I don't. I, I didn't feel afraid at any time, and it wasn't. It wasn't trying to engage that sort of excitement in you of fear. It pulls at these at your doubt. Maybe that's what makes it slight. That's where the tension comes from. Is doubt. Yeah, I was going to say it's. A, it's a kind of. I don't mean. I mean this. In, I mean this in a very particular way. But it's. It's. There's a kind of grotesqueness to it mm. that they're and not in a horrifying grotesque way, but that there's just something slightly out of shape out of yeah out of human shape with it yeah. that 
while at the same time it insists that it is a human shape and it's and like how you recover that or recuperate that as as someone writing the story or reading the story or thinking about the story or talking on a podcast about the story ends up being the thing at stake yeah i think it is about being out of shape a world being out of shape and individuals being out of shape there's a a paragraph in what is a volcano that I've landed on while we've been talking that, that I think gets into this as well and and perhaps also explains a little the the kind of lens I was talking about earlier of, of the ways in which cult, these cultures collide in ways that are obviously bad and worse for some people than others, but bad in all the directions. Um, this is just from the middle of the, or actually, yeah, the middle of the story. It says, the only one who felt the rage of river multiplied by that most powerful feeling that won't let a person rest guilt river's sister not quite goddess the guilt turned in her belly like a ship in a storm she'd slept while her sister's children were taken blame so like a god itself shadowed her occupied her bed like a lover whispered to her like a dearest friend her name was eventually forgotten soon all called her she who betrayed river a name that over the years degenerated to betrayed river then bereaver which stuck and eventually even Bereaver forgot that she had ever been anyone else. Guilt crushed every milestone in her life to dust so that she knew only before and after, and before seemed like the unfathomable dream of a foolish woman. And I think if I spent like 20 minutes that we probably don't have right now talking through that and, and really in a quite a lot of detail in respect to these ideas, which I'm, it's all kind of in there, that, that there's, there's this m mutilation that has occurred, like a a kind of internal, in this case, mutilation of her sense of self through all of these different attacks to the sense of, of who she or who they as a... This whole story is is a kind of allegorical story. Who they are as as forces, as, as natural forces, that they've become twisted into something that they weren't and don't even remember the thing. So that they don't remember the, the spirit that could... That the photograph doesn't... You don't need a photograph. The spirit... Is, is still alive if the photograph isn't there to remind you that it's not. And the spirit doesn't have to try and pull itself out of a photograph in order to assert this, this cultural and spiritual and religious and, and you know, familial uh, identity and existence. Yeah, I agree. And I, for me, that story didn't work so well, just because no, of... I agree. Was, I'm not so keen on allegory. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's worthwhile playing with that and seeing it's always interesting to for me to see how people read african literature mm -hmm. and what they bring to it and what they what they look for in it and i think that that's it's not giving them necessarily what they want and that's that's an interesting choice yeah i completely agree with you on that point and i wonder if that's maybe a nice way to finish our, our conversation today that, that this book is really one that, that asks you to question some assumptions you might bring to, mm. I am reading a work of African literature. Yeah. I am reading a work of American literature. I'm a, reading a work of, you know, <laughs> born in London, British literature. Where do we sit? And what are the assumptions that you want to bring to yourself, to your, to your reading as a reader say about, yourself and also say about the work in front of you the the things that are you know the thing you're reading so which part was the question 
Uh, I'm not sure. That, I'm not sure there was a question there. I was just sort of summing uh -huh. up. Maybe that's a. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry. Okay. It's I not, it's not a job interview. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it felt like a big question, so I wanted no, to make it, well, sure. No, it was kind of so. It, and that's it was a big question, but it's um, yeah. it's a it's a big it open question um, that I'm imagining the person who's been listening to us um, jibber jabbering at each other for the last hour <laughs> might um, might want to answer themselves rather than. I'll leave um, it to them. Yeah, thank you, um, Nadifa Mohammed. Thank you so much for joining me on Novel Romantics, and everyone who's been listening should rush to their local bookstore and buy The Fortune Men, which is hot off, the, like still burning Fair. off the press. <laughs> yes, finger burning. But also it will be published in German in September. Oh, brilliant. So if you're listening in Germany, here's your big chance. You can look <laughs> avant-garde and ahead of the game and yes. read Nadifa Mohammed's novel, The Fortune Men. What's the title going to be in German? Oh, I, I know it. I know it. I know it. Um, the Geist von Tiger Bay, the Ghost awesome. of Tiger Bay. So, go to your local bookstore, get it, order it ahead of time, so that there's a huge spike in sales when it actually hits the shelves. And uh, keep your eye out for Nadifa when she's um, hopefully in Germany. Yes, in Berlin, it. hopefully September. Thanks, Nadifa. Thank you, Doug. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.